But I'm not a shallow guy. You know that, John. I'm not a shallow yeah. guy. Are you kidding? I mean, people look at me, they figure I'm the type of guy I get, I get drunk and go to the track, right? And they're wrong. I get high first, and I get drunk and go to the track. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I'm not a shallow guy. You kidding? I'm a good lover, though, with Are girls. You? Oh, very good lover. I make love to a girl. She scratches, she screams, and she realizes I'm not going to take no for an answer. That's you know? right. <laughs> Now the girls I get aren't worth getting anyway. You kidding? I get fat girl. Girl, girl last week a fat girl. Very fat girl Bad last up. week. You kidding? Fat, fat. <laughs> uh, fat. She went swimming. She left the ring around the lake. Okay, she's fat. <laughs> <laughs> fat. That's a big girl. Big fat girl. You That's kidding? Very fat. You don't get pretty well, girls. She got a job sitting in the front end of trucks while they change the rear tires. I didn't know that. Fat chick. You kidding? Large heavy, girl. heavy. You heavy kidding? girl. Oh, she tried computer dating. The machine messed her up with Detroit. <laughs> Fat girl, Johnny. I'll tell you that. Fat girl, boy. I put my arm around her waist. I got jet lag. Are you kidding? Yeah. I mean, this girl was fat and ugly. Ooh, Sounds she ugly. Ugly, girl. huh? How ugly? Well, Christmas, they hang her and kiss the mistletoe. Okay, she's ugly. I'm telling you. That's a bad looking girl. Shit. I took her to the beach. They asked me what I use for bait. <laughs> bait. <laughs> She walks in the room, mice jump on chairs. Are you kidding? <laughs> okay. That's unpleasant looking girl. Uh, that's enough talking about girls. Talk about health. About How is your health? health? Very bad. You We're all welcome back for a brand new edition of Nick's Nonfiction. I am your MC for the evening, Nick Muniz. Here we've got an August and anniversary edition, three years into stand up. If you could even count the last year, I've been performing in gazebos following jugglers. Performing for six masked haters down in Meadowlark. You know, it's a crazy scene right now. Cliff Nesteroff is giving us the history back to the 1800s, all the way up through the booms and the busts of today. It's called The Comedians. Where does this guy get off? He thinks he's the be-all, end-all authority on comedy. The king of comedy, Cliff Nesteroff. Women are good for 70 things. Sandwiches and 69. <laughs> Comedy is subjective. My Mount Rushmore, if I had to put them left to right, we're putting Bill Cosby, Carlos Mencia, Louis C.K., and Chris D'Elia. Maybe a little bit more like Mount Touchmore. I'm going all the way back to the 20s. Prohibition speakeasies where the mafia would put up smart fellas and some fart smellers. Boo, you stink! Comedians are usually either pussy slayers or sussy players. <laughs> then came the beatnik coffee shops of the 1950s, where if you told a poop joke, this was committing obscenity. Does this sound like a Brooklyn open mic where, even down in Denver, I've been told that places if you say fag, you will be not asked to come back again. <laughs> but then you go to Blush and Blue right on Colfax, the lesbian bar, and they hoot and holler when you're throwing around slurs. Censorship throughout the ages might take the guise of burlesque or blasphematic activity. My friggin' Trump video just got censored because I wrote a good joke. If Joe Biden could write a book, it would be called The Art of the Steel. <laughs> well, now we're gonna get censored twice. Integrity. You either die a comedian or live long enough to become a late-night propagandist. <laughs> you guys saw the uh, intro video for the show, Rodney Dangerfield. They were cheering him on for the rape jokes. They know it's all in good spirit. If you can't laugh at the darkest shit, it's all just be sad forever. Rodney, I joined Gamblers Anonymous. <laughs> they gave me two to one odds I wouldn't make it. I joined AA. There was a two drink minimum. Me and my dad used to play tag. He'd drive. I tell you, I get no respect 
when I used to play hide-and-seek, other kids wouldn't even look for me. <laughs> you know, Jack Roy Rodney failed for 30 years. We can get his story. We'll get Lenny Bruce and how he dealt brunt force censorship back in the day. No respect. Then came the late night, the radio era. And what's the opposite of stand-up comedy? Sitcom. <laughs> Muscled that one a little bit. We're talking Larry David Seinfeld in the 80s. All you needed was a piano necktie, a knock-knock joke, and a ticket to L.A. to become the next big thing. <laughs> We're talking cultural icons like Joe Rogan, who ruined my life. Yeah, man. Everyone should just uh, quit their job and start comedy, you know? If more people moved to Austin, there would be less traffic, less homeless. It's all in good spirit. I mean, what else would I be doing with my life? It's a stoic pursuit. For some amount of time, you get to stand on top of the mountain of comedy. <laughs> Until some newer guy comes and dethrones you. That's what it's all about. We'll go through the 60s, which was called the era of I. People started talking about themselves. You have... George Carlin, all of his conspiracies <laughs> came true. What's the difference between conspiracy and truth? Around six months to a year. That era of I was the perfect door in for all the black comics, Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock. You know, I grew up watching Everybody Hates Chris. I'm white as an eggshell. My daddy used to take the batteries out the clock at night. That way we used to save time and money. <laughs> it's people, uh, Cliff Nesteroff is calling it an art form today, is the history of clowns. And it's truly a subculture of drunks, conmen, kleptomaniacs, necrophiliacs, rapists, pedophiles, my favorite people. Before we get this cliff note about the author, we're throwing it over to a word from our sponsors. Welcome back. Make sure you're checking out that Patreon page. I also post the funniest memes left on Instagram at Harry Schwant or just search the niche on YouTube every single night. You get a topical joke. Cliff Nesteroff, a quick one. He's a human encyclopedia of American stand-up comedy. Worked for the New York Times, LA Times, Vanity Fair. He was a stand-up for eight years before getting involved in CBC Radio. He made it all the way up to the Just for Laughs Festival during uh whatever his sixth year he said and that's like the entrance to the machine you know you could start pitching your own pilots that go nowhere once they recognize you at montreal he writes about uh power not equating to talent and how this pisses him off obviously um just uh talk about your pussy mrs schumer and have a dad chuck schumer that's in the intelligence community talent doesn't always equate to drawing power and he was just sad to leave the business, seeing that people don't always get the respect they deserve. <laughs> and uh, trusting the process ain't always the best way to go about it. Worked on CNN, History of Comedy show. Biggest credit he had was on WTF, that Mark Marin show. And that's like the mom podcast. <laughs> I had like college professors listen. I'm hip. I listened to comics talk about their worst hours instead of trying to be funny. Mark Marin was the fucking door guy at the comedy store now he has barack obama in his garage it's a real rags to riches story there um mark 
Why do you have so much BDSM equipment in your garage? Cliff, he knows all about this uh, 20s vaudeville, mafia, 50s, 70s, the cocaine era we're going to go through. Everybody pays their due to the craft and everybody bombs. You guys hear that? I swear to God, I hear something. Oh, I think it's for you. Yeah, that's another word from our sponsors. Here we are back again for another edition, August-themed. It's going to be a fun one. There's like 12 chapters in this book, and we'll probably go a little bit long. I'll try to spice in some stories. Chapter 1, Vaudeville Comedians. In the 1870s, the U.S. had about 500 vaudeville theaters, most with less than 500 seats, and the larger ones had 1,000 to up to 5,000, some of the bigger theaters you'll see today. Strict dress policy in these theaters. If you had a top hat and your name was Abe, they told you to get out. Gave birth to the working class circus. It's an underbelly of future stars learning how to make people laugh without the uh, face paint. And if you guys are on the Patreon, a couple weeks ago we had the Mark Twain, and he supposedly started stand-up comedy. He just would uh, say he would let the silence speak for him, and then the people fill it with laughter. That is if you're funny. Mark Twain, he looks like he just touched a Tesla coil. This guy uh, birthed the craft. In the 1880s, Benjamin Keith owned most of these vaudeville theaters, and he cut deals with freak shows, and then the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, you know, the big one. In the 1900s, <laughs> I think like the only, I'm doing air quotes, comedian that's been to actual clown school is Steve-O. And people get mad at him for cashing out on stage. You know, where do you, you know where the shit comes from? Don't hold yourself so high and mighty. I bet if your career takes a dive, you would start lighting firecrackers in your ass to get the recognition Steve-O wants. It's just a bunch of clout chasers out here. Even since 1880 and Benjamin Keith. <laughs> 1900s, turn of the century. Parishioners were fighting the vaudeville theaters because they didn't like the freak shows going on in there. Started a hundred-year battle. Of the church, you know, now Republicans don't even care about abortion. That was the biggest thing growing up. What do you, what's the party? Just storming capitals. Keith's wife started to go around the theaters and was saying, all right, you know, the cops are cracking down, no more profanity. So then, of course, Mrs. Keith becomes the butt of the joke as soon as she leaves. What's up with that bitch? Is she got a corn husk up her cooch? Well, I'm going to curse all I want. <laughs> Who's going to tell on me? The internet, such a fertile place for comedy. The most supportive fans, and nobody censoring a goddamn thing. Keith gets a partner, Edward Albee. They start buying up independent theaters. Cliff was saying at this time, you could get signed to a circuit for three to five years, and you would go around with flashy dancers. Fred Allen, Milton Berle started in this era. He said it was a monopoly. Hell gigs, though, were common in small towns where even the hooker was a virgin. Comedian Rube Dixon stepped outside for a smoke in Kansas City, and the marquee fell on his head. <laughs> it's like a Halloween decoration. His little witch feet are sticking out. Wizard of Oz. Joan Rivers talked about this era a little bit as well, and her book is in the backlog on the Patreon Library of Congress, Enter Talking, 
guys got to check it out. Our first catalog ever. Scroll down on the YouTube page. It doesn't look the same. Vaudeville theaters, Joan would say that there was gas leaks common and it would like rise up through the floorboards and everybody was basically on laughing gas. So she would kill extra hard in the older theaters. Mo Howard recognized this guy from the Three Stooges talked about green rooms being underwater in Boston. If the talent didn't pick up the cleaning jobs after some time, they would lose their stay at the inn or you'd have to find your own boarding house. This <laughs> fucking 1800s. The people must be entertained. Audiences at this time mostly full of prostitutes, pimps, touts, beggars, thieves. Big drug of the time was opium, and the second most popular turn of the century was morphine. Not the best <laughs> drug for comedy. You have Denver is such a big comedy town because the drug of choice is marijuana. And that's a giggly, you're not fighting hecklers down like you hear about in Florida. <laughs> I considered moving to Tampa. And I'm going to have to take to one of the coasts soon because uh, you can't build an entire career out here in the Great Plains. Although I did get a spot, Great Plains Comedy Festival 2019. Jose McCall used to run uh, Mutiny Info, closed down after the pandemic, but that was on the venue for this music festival. So I got to go do seven minutes. It's the hardest hit in seven minutes you'll ever see. I didn't get my name on any of the bullshit pamphlets. You know, that shit would have been framed. I say comic at the beginning of the show when people get mad. I've made $5 at Kinga's, also on Colfax for the best set. I've been told to keep coming back to the comedy works. You know, it's all about bridging this gap like these clowns were trying to. It's not a good living. <laughs> then again, you got dudes making millions of dollars off of Patreon currently every year. <laughs> Burlesque was what it was called in this 1800s era, and you often headlined next to a chick that was dancing. Milton Berle would say you would crush any time you talked about sex or Christianity. And this is where the idea of working blue came from. Vaudeville would always print clean bills to put outside to not draw any suspicions. That's really what it is. I'd always say there's girls that scream rape. There's people doing fucking anything to get attention. I know one guy, <laughs> he fills a backpack up with shit from Goodwill and then he just pulls it out. At some of the coffee shops, I'll just pull books off of shelves and then you riff off of that you know nobody it's the same goddamn audience how much are we growing out here uh this miners town in the 1880s adapted the hook which you've probably seen on tv if this act stinks you get the giant hook and yank the guy off stage and then someone took it too far <laughs> they developed a net that they would drop down from the rafters and then some guy at the floodlights would just pull you down and then one guy they had to stop he started getting cut because he broke the footlights <laughs> slashed his guts out on stage metal harpo marx would say that the crowd would throw sticks and stones at you <laughs> spitballs cigar butts fruit cores buster keaton would do Pratt falls all the time anything to get these people to not throw tomatoes at you and his brother came on stage and kicked him in the head and he didn't do it Pratt enough. He was knocked out for 18 hours. Wild times. 1905. It basically is like Annie Oakley's Wild West show at this time. <laughs> Definitely get naked. I'm on a sex offender list now every time I pretend to hump a stool. Bob Hope is the guy that notoriously um, invented blackface. <laughs> but what? how else are you going to be... A quippy Jewish comedian down in the south. 
he was one of these guys that was like sink or swim here <laughs> shoe polish and now I'm fucking David Duke because I'm trying to make people laugh until the 1920s there was never like a master of ceremonies MC a host never crossed people they would just hand the mic off to the next performer they usually do this in LA you hear Frank also is seen as the first unassisted stand up no props no backup dance moves Frank blazed the trail was brave enough to not take anything up there with him that's basically what mark twain was doing most consistent stand-up in cliff's perspective was barbara stanwick from the late 20s she made it until mid-century and then here we have to end the chapter the marx brothers went east to west coast for about 25 years and they would see chaplin destroy and would say the crowd's you couldn't recreate what this guy was capable of. <laughs> if you ever see somebody make fire, like we've spent a lot of times in the woods as a kid finding fucking dry flakes and rubbing sticks together, when somebody actually catches a spark, <laughs> you look at them and you're like, what the fuck, dude? Did you do it? You just made that shit? And now I'm thinking this comparison is cringe because rappers say, fie, that's just straight fire. <laughs> Seeing like Groucho Marx, the way people could send waves through an audience. It's next level shit. He probably pushed the game further than Jack Benny or Ben Bernie ever could. This guy Florence Zigfield in the vaudeville days. He opened on Broadway, handpicked talent, and was charging people three times the price. So he's looked at as someone who was like, uh, able to be a middle-class comedian. You're not just some drifter clown. 1904, Friars Club was founded, and they were inviting publicists to make fun of. You know, that's where the roasts come out of. Business was booming before the 20s, and then the market crash kind of brings in a new era. The Palace at Broadway and 47th was the uh, Madison Square Garden of their time. And then it closed down a little bit for the 30s. <laughs> These fucking... The economy really does affect how much people can laugh. Good note from Cliff to end it on. He said, Joe Laurie Jr. wrote a book about the vaudeville era, and it's 1,500 pages. <laughs> you could stomach that much. Go check it out. This is comedy's first death, and burlesque fell off the face of Earth basically permanently. Comedy. It's the cockroach you can't kill. Chapter 2. Radio. By the mid-1930s, there were over 30 million radios in America. The golden age is looked at as the 30s to the 50s. Some say now is the golden age of podcasting. Top radio guys were making $100 a minute. So you know these opportunists are barking off their tree. It was the first time a laugh track was implemented in the 30s. This is a game changer. You could have mediocre content and just throw down a laugh track. You see that? Mick Muniz, king of comedy. Thank you, you're too kind. <laughs> this, is a, this was 30s radio. Marketing was developing, like the Mad Men era. These guys were called the Madison Ave Hucksters. This is the first time you could get hired as a comedy writer. Just coming up with silly sketches. Comedian Jack Oakley was one of the first to frequent radio shows, and he made seven grand a week. Rudy Valley was the first uh, Johnny Carson of types. He would have young talents on nightly, different guys to try to blow their name up. 
Cliff said all you needed to be able to do at the time was identify, set up a punchline, and you had a job as a radio writer. But then everybody in your town looks down on you as a <laughs> someone who followed their dreams. 1932, Ed Wynn was a comedian who pioneered a live audience radio show. It's the original Oprah out here. Paramount Studios saw how popular this was, and they hired a radio duo named Abbott and Costello. Who? Abbott and who? Abbott was the genius. Costello was a comic movie star. It was like your uh, South Park, Trey Baker, whatever. There's one of those guys. <laughs> Complete spectrum-shattering joke writer. And then the other one takes acid at the Oscars. It's good. The comedy duo is born. You gotta have the straight man and the fucking goofy Abbott and Costello go by Amos and Andy on air in the beginning. In 1943, they switched over with over 4,000 hours of experience and started their act on the road. Who's on fucking my ass? 1951, they moved to TV, but racial comedy was hitting a little bit less, which was a lot of their material. If you go back and listen, the war was over, so now we have to argue about transgender bathrooms. I tell you, when we go to war with China... I'm going to be making a lot more jokes about chicks making sandwiches. <laughs> 1940s Jack Benny program was blown up. It was after the war they would have a roster of Negroes on doing whiteface. <laughs> that was okay until the 90s. I'm sure uh, Dave Chappelle could still get away with it. On the Jack Benny program, Kraft advertised Jell-O, and it became the number one Kraft product. And it's basically, I have an advertising degree, mass media communication. You can't tell how effective your ads are. So when this happened, they were like, why is Jell-O selling? This is horse hooves. And they traced it back to the Jack Benny program. It's got some power. Why do you think uh, John Stewart and those late night hosts have been castrated? On the show, John Cahill came through jack benny program and he got fired cbs was like you're not being on any of our affiliate stations anymore which is every station in the u.s look into iHeartRadio. they fired him over a nazi sympathizer joke <laughs> it's a ripe time for comedy 1940 you got henry ford selling tank engines over to the germans to then slaughter us fellow americans buying gmc it's absurd as fuck how you can't point this shit out though I guess there's this start of censorship a little bit. Until 1941, Nazi criticism was not allowed. <laughs> IBM, keep on selling those punch cards to Dachau. Also called Hitler the number one gangster in the world. John Cahill, legend. 1940s nightclub comics were doing tours on bases. And again, they were like, <laughs> you can't come and entertain the troops anymore. Because they're wise enough to authority. Gabity 2021. Samantha B is funny because she sucks off the authority. <laughs> 1940s. Cliff was saying uh, becoming a motion picture star was capturing a lot of young comics' attention. So they were uh, already not grinding it out in the trenches. <laughs> First generation of comics is dying out is what he's hinting at. Harry Einstein was one of them who had spine surgery and would go up on stage in a wheelchair. One of the first guys donated all of his money to the Hollywood Palladium. Gregory Gibbett stole his act as Einstein was dying in his chair. Einstein kicked ass at the Friars' roasts until the end, they would say. 
he had a microbial infraction on stage. Sounds like something your principal would give you. <laughs> Getting an on-stage infraction. He performed for 80 minutes and then was pronounced dead backstage. One of the first guys to die on stage. <laughs> Were you supposed to idolize that? <laughs> yes, I want to die surrounded by strangers. <laughs> it was, uh, he was only 54. It's a weird way to go. Ending this chapter, Fred Allen noticed people were stealing material more than ever now with the radio. People were making fun of executives just to fill airtime originally. They would cut the DJs off with NBC chimes if they were, you know, stepping on too many toes of the higher-ups. Ending the Fred Allen Show, 1950. Many people called this the end of the Hadoop era. I don't even know what that means. Bunch of smart fellas cracking wise cadence changes with era this might be the end of one of the most outspoken eras with lenny bruce this is like the mrs mazel that show i watched the first few episodes of i guess it it's a timepiece, so i don't really have anything else to base it off of but i guess it was set well good decorations and they did show the lenny bruce character getting arrested a good amount which was apparently an accurate representation if mrs mazel was saying um Taiwan's not a country. They would have given her a purple heart. <laughs> Let's go to chapter three, nightclubs. With Prohibition done, mobsters ran even less nightclubs, and so there were more legit venues to be worked. Dick Curtis was a boxing coach who later went on to find talent. He looked at as one of the first scouts, and he coined the term stand-up comic. A lot of solo comedians still wouldn't work Chicago at the time because the mob would shake them down. Dick Curtis probably should have taught him how to punch. John Burl did some package runs for the mob and they killed him, put his penis in his corpse's mouth. This is MI6 or some fucking <laughs> Mexican gang. Straight up. Straight up. Lenny Bruce would joke about Chicago saying, a viable death certificate cause of death there is... He wouldn't listen. Mob-controlled show business for 40 years. Legalized things become safer. <laughs> Five insult comics opened their own club in New York, 18th and West 52nd. <coughs> Jack White ran it for 10 years. Bob Hope would also work there, and he would sit in on the audience on his buddies and try to make them bomb, you know, trying to get each other to grow thick skin. Jackie Gleason would work the club when one of the original five was on the road. Frankie Hires, another one of the five, invented the phrase, And away we go! With Jackie Gleason then lifted from him and then made a killing off of misogyny. It's funny. Nautilus Hotel opened up and had 300 theaters all over the country. Four in Las Vegas alone. And they had an army of their own performers. Cliff Note. It was a time, no matter how bad your act was, you could always find a stripper to lay. Everything was a club date at the time. Nobody was doing weekends. Gleason, even after the honeymooners, could show up for one night. Lenny Bruce was also one of the top-tier acts at the time as well. The Copacabana was one of the most popular mom clubs, Cliff said, in New York. That's where the money is. you got to take your wife out on the town. Copacabana, notorious Sinatra sightings. Don Sherman would always perform there. Um, comedy writer Saul Weinstein 
grew a name writing for Joe E. Lewis, Sophie Tucker, and Alan Drake. So Cliff's trying to say, now you could just write stand-up for other people. There's that much money in it that you could have a ghost on your side. Alan Drake's wife won Miss New Jersey, and then he got whacked by the mob. So the mob is still not taking it lightly that they're being dethroned. Like a Goodfellas very funny movie. But Italian guys? Whoa, did you just make fun of my mother? They don't have the best sense of humor. We'll cut your dick off if <laughs> that joke was over the line. There is no line. I'm a 1A absolutist. <laughs> Jimmy Savo, arrested way before Lenny Bruce. Cliff is saying he might be the original martyr. Not a lot of info on Jimmy Savo in the book. Lenny Bruce's defense was always, I resort to smut because the patrons are demanding it. Cop doesn't care. Needs you to pay bail. It's really a fucking conundrum, knowing that you could just start pulling out your raunchiest material and it'll get a grandma to break face. <laughs> but you're not allowed to. It's People will judge you if you do it too early in your set. What are with the rules? The rule of law is funny out here in the Wild West. <laughs> Larry Albert, Jackie Miles got really big in New York City. They made 90% of the money in New York for a little while. It's fucking comedy's a pyramid scheme. Every club in the country, the talented few people at the top make money, and you get invited back to the open mic to keep filling the two-drink minimum. Gotta make your own path, Bridget, to comedian on your own. Or just fucking buy your own nightclub like those classic five. So the 40s and the 50s in New York was the most important place that you could be. Unless you're trying to be John Wayne. Don Sherman was a theater house guy and jazz bands hated him because he would riff all night. You know, the jazz bands still had a really big pull in the New York scene. You know, jazz fell off too. And then comedy still stuck around. <laughs> People don't need to wear a turtleneck and snap their fingers to feel good. You gotta laugh. That's the only release valve most people have as humans. And sex. Good thing brothels are outlawed. I'm gonna open the first in Las Vegas comedy club brothel. It's gonna be ha-has and ta-tas. How come comedy clubs don't have, like, a First Amendment exception? Leave! You know what you're walking into. Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis blew up out of the Paramount gave aspiring comics a venue uh, to flock to, you know, the Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis show, Big in TV, which is the next chapter. Eh, finishing up the nightclubs, Lenny Bruce's mom, Sally Marr, managed a handful of comedians that Lenny would pick. His mom got him a radio appearance, which sent his career to that theater level. 1951 was when Lenny was introduced to heroin. There's a litany of conspiracy theories on who supplied it to him. One of Lenny's boys, a potential talent, was a kid, Jack Roy, later known as Rodney Dangerfield. Jack Roy bombed more often than he would not. I don't know why that tall tale gets repeated, just so losers feel good. He succeeded when he was 50, because he was trying for 40 years. And that's probably why his catchphrase is, I get no respect. <laughs> it's the same guy, just using different pseudonyms. I use my stage name, Seymour Coochie. Don't steal that. Rodney got a spot on a big radio show thanks to Lenny's mom. He came up with that Rodney Dangerfield character from a phone gag in the Jack Benny program. Should take us to chapter four. Television. TV boom. 
perfect for emerging comics looking for a break and fading radio stars looking for a home. People didn't know at first, though, that uh, TV was better for, like, baseball and 10-round boxing matches. You can't have Buster Keaton doing stale bits for hours on end. Like, even at a 90 minutes tops, people are done hearing with what you have to say, even if it's gut-busting. You can't laugh for that long. You're going to get an ab workout. Nobody had the Nielsen meters, as I was saying, advertising. It's just because Coca-Cola has all the money that they could flood the markets, and that's why you're brainwashed. Executives were just giving their best guess at what they should advertise in TV shows. Now, you know, Google knows what I'm thinking. How the fuck? Buster Keaton would have got a fucking stale bread sent to his house. Biscotti is just a twice-baked cookie. Look into it. Another resurgence of comedy happened when TV was coming about, and the comedians then could make money off of doing commercials. Supplements the newbies, just a bigger scene. You could pay more writers or whatever. It flowers out from there. Jack Benny made it back to theaters after radio. So he's one of the first guys that are looked at as having a roller coaster career. Buddy Hackett made it to the big time via the Phil Silvers show, one of the good uh, platforms for younger guys. Mel Brooks was making $5,000 as a writer on that Phil Silvers show. There's more money in radio still, they're saying. It's just uh, more diversity. Some comedians couldn't carry their own show, Cliff was saying. The Ed Sullivan show was not one of those. That guy was the holy grail for news. He broke Rodney Dangerfield, Alan King, Topefield, Moms Mabley, and Joan Rivers. Sullivan was known for butchering your act during rehearsal, and he would like try to throw you in some notes. Well, maybe instead of saying slut there, you say floozy. Yeah, that'll hit just as hard solely. <laughs> uh, Jordan. Will Jordan was the first one to mock Sullivan live on air. Immediately cut to a commercial. <laughs> Saying these radio hosts, they were such sore losers back then. Sullivan started to abuse the laugh box, and so comedians wouldn't even go on the show anymore. Like, comics do not like this. Thumbs up, thumbs down. You gotta get in the club to know if your jokes are hitting and if people like this Ed Sullivan douche was just like the mad men of Hudson Ave <laughs> and he fucking ruined the platform for everybody Ed Sullivan is one of these stick to the old type of guys it's the next wave <laughs> so most people usually can't adapt Groucho Marx evolved fairly well he was hired for a game show He's like one of the first guys. You got Howie Mandel, the germaphobe. He's making his own briefcases full of money. Got infiltrated by the CIA and dismantled in 1953. Deal or no deal? We're talking Groucho Marx's game show here. They said some of the writers were in the Communist Party. <laughs> Censorship. How are we going to motivate people to be ruthless pigs of capitalism when we're talking about sharing? NBC writers were uh, developing programs for Pacific comedians at this time. Woody Allen scooped up a spot. Where you know him from, Tonight Show. Introduced more comics to the mainstream. And I'm going to mush together the late night chapter here. Because it's about TV. Jack Parr was the original Carson. Bill Maher, you know, Roseanne and Don Rickles all broke on the Tonight Show. 
Don Hornsby was being turned into a star. And then he died of polio during the campaign push. This guy was running for president. So you think uh, Joe Rogan hosting the Trump-Biden debate on his podcast. There are comedians who have been trying to run for public office for a long time. Politicians are just fucking comics who don't have an act. Except for Trump. That dude was a (laughs) stand-up. Steve Allen uh, had his show in the 1956. Was the first ever recurring cast of sketch actors. Steve Allen, 1956, invented SNL. You must have had sketch comedy before this. Like they said in the vaudeville era, every single show would have a schoolroom scene. It's the most relatable thing everybody had at that time. There was no social media. You could just make a joke about Big Chungus. (laughs) It makes me laugh every time. This schoolroom bit, you had to put the dunce cap on people. So maybe that was considered hack back in the day. Erica After Dark was one of these uh, talk shows that Cliff was saying she couldn't hang, she couldn't fill an hour of airtime, no hook. Steve Allen left the uh, Tonight Show for a price. Apparently they bought him off, but we don't know the ratings. Apparently he was taking because Dick Van Dyke, Betty White were getting big. Jack Parr comes along and he turns the Tonight Show into the talk show that we know it as. Parr was picked because he was a squared away comedian. He was like a fill-in during the Jack Benny program too. So he was in these friggin' TV circles. It's like a Fallon in the Tonight Show where you go to end your career. Parr was also hosting a three-hour, five-day-a-week morning show. (laughs) Some Opie and Anthony shit. Jack Parr, perfect candidate for the job. May of 1958, he took a vacation, and Johnny Carson filled in for him. And everyone was like, yeah, we needed a a little bit of a change-up. NBC decided to hire Carson, and they still gave Parr some Friday night prime slot. But now we know tonight's show, Carson. Chapter 5, Las Vegas. It's a quicker one. In the 50s, Vegas was an ancestral town of who knows who. All of comedy is a closed-door business. Danny Thomas had a TV show in the early 50s and retired to Las Vegas doing $10,000 weekends. This is like a... Who's the Indian? Russell Peters. These guys have um, residencies, they call it, in Las Vegas. That's the move. Kick back, play golf. You're already gambled your life, so you got that bug fixed. <laughs> Comedy team Norman and Dean could make $30,000 a weekend in Vegas. This is the biggest money in comedy at the time. You can make like sixty k if you fill a full weekend at a club in 2020. Oh, I don't know about COVID restrictions. 60s were trying bigger and bigger lewd bombs. You could feel shockwaves during people's set was what Cliff was saying in Las Vegas. That's a good place, the city of vice, to try some of your worst material. Buddy Hackett and Jack Carter got their starts here. Jack Carter shot a scorpion through the stage (laughs) mid-act. This is Hunter S. Thompson era of Vegas. You could pull out your revolver when you're on adrenochrome. Why not kill an audience member? That would have been a lot funnier. Hackett's (laughs) his closing bit was taping his eyes back to his ears. Taruk Chinese. 
You can imagine people falling out of their seats. <laughs> I've never seen an Oriental. Is that what they look like? Hackett quickly became every comic's favorite comic. He once shot up a car from a balcony and then went inside and did his show. <laughs> and so there were like cops going up and down the aisles saying, we're looking for an audience member who shot up this car. And so he's doing the in-person, the realist sitcom. You sure? Officer, maybe you should check the upper deck. Have you guys looked underneath the stage? <laughs> so then on a fucking goose chase. Buddy Hackett has some really good late night appearances as well. Considered using those for the intro. And uh, Wonderful World of Walt Disney. They had the Disney Files. It was basically like their own Tonight Show. And it was dirty, but lovable. <laughs> Disney didn't stay in the game very long. Shecky Green was another comedian in Las Vegas. Other comics would end their sets early just to go see him. He came up in the jazz club, so he didn't know how to structure an act. He just got pushed around by the jazz band. So he was like going with the flow, looked at as one of the first guys to improv a little bit as well. Don Rickles, insult comics, love him. He would battle drunk hecklers all day. Vegas, perfect for. You got to watch the... Don Rickles' roast of Frank Sinatra. I've never seen anybody murder this hard. You know, a roast is one of the places you're going to get the most laughs. It's an everything is an inside joke. Rickles roasting Sinatra. Do yourself a favor. Please go look this up. Marx said he'd never be a star. We'll end it on that. Go along to chapter six. Stand-up's great change. Up to this point. Still, nobody's talking about thyself on stage. Instead of I went to a bar, it's a guy walks into a bar. And this is a trick for likability. Instead of, like, shitting on your mom, you go, my mother-in-law is the worst. And then the societal shame vanishes. Maybe this is why all that Rickle Hackett era, those guys died crazy lives. They weren't getting the therapeutic value of being like, I want to beat up my boss. It feels good. And everybody identifies with that. You had to go, a fella walks into a bar and smashes a bar glass over his boss's head. <laughs> I don't know. It feels good. Cliff made a pretty good point here how still people were stealing acts from the radio. But the radio guys got most of their jokes from books. <laughs> Every joke has been told through the theater of the absurd Shakespeare knew the funniest thing that could ever happen is a guy getting hit in the nuts. And it's never going to change. Even memes are just old jokes that get recycled. People, everything's ripping each other off. I don't know. I try not to, like, watch too much because, you know, you don't want to be influenced or whatever. Reading a book provides a decent amount of uh, organic inspiration. Pretty gay word. Nora Crosby admitted that he was doing everybody's act on the Ed Sullivan show. Even names were directly ripped from people. A guy called himself Joey Jackie. It's like <laughs> Little Nas X. You're taking Nas's name, Lil Zan's name, X. But this is um post-irony rap that we are in, which is kind of where the memes are at now. Haunts. This is not a meme, it's just a horse with a deep-fried filter over it. And it's making me giggle for some reason. <laughs> Every joke has been made. 
I don't know where it goes from here on the internet. I wish comedy was that easy where people didn't want to actually hear jokes. <laughs> when Mighty Bruce went to L.A., he was too high to write, paid an impressionist to write his act. And this is, he's saying, the era of the eye. Impressionists are becoming bigger than ever. You get so many more laughs. I've been growing out my mustache just because it's like a fucking the Groucho Marx goggles, the nose, the fake <laughs> glasses. You could have so many more facial expressions that are stupid when you got a big, wide, shit-caked stash on your face. <laughs> I've tried the long hair on stage last year. Go check out our whip clips. We talk about that. You command more attention for sure just because you're an outlier, but I think you lose a little bit of likability as well. Who cares about this behind-the-scenes math? It's the shit that people were thinking about, like uh, fucking Lenny Bruce on heroin <laughs> thing is impressionist. He bought up Woody Allen here now, touchy topic. Guy was bred for a writer gig. He was stunted in New York at a young age. Yiddish, yada, yada. Uh, and there was a bit of a division in the comedy scene because some people were saying, oh, you're not allowed to talk about yourself on stage. You have to have third-person objective jokes. And now you know you want to hear a comedian's specific take on a thing. Things change a lot. It would be kind of cool if it just went back to the jokey joke New York writers. Again, you get censored if you write a joke that's too on the nose. Gabity, it's subjective, and the high class has to standardize it as they do. Samantha B, fucking Trevor Noah. It's like, um, how are you going to advertise to the base if you haven't pigeonholed your comedians? So this era of the eye, maybe it's a psyop. It changed comedians to be easily marketable. So you have the drunk guy you got to go see, and then he sells a ton of shots. And then you have Doug Benson you get high with after saying these are bad things i should get better at it myself the dumb guy that reads books you can't sell an oxymoron to dummies straight up <laughs> i gotta rebrand in the 1960s one of the rising black comedians was nipsey russell <laughs> old heads don't know why i'm laughing we're all supposed to care about Nipsey Hussle, this black rapper that died, who probably stole his flow from some 90s truth rapper. Nipsey would make fun of rich white people. He was like one of the first people to get white people to laugh at themselves. Is Cliff's take. He's starting to sound like, who's that guy? Dave Chappelle's underling. Neil Brennan. <laughs> yes. We have to make white people feel guilty for it to be comedy. <laughs> this was like, uh, we're getting into the civil rights era. <laughs> so you got Bill Cosby telling the black community how to act. I'm saying don't look to your fucking comedians for political commentary, social... You're there to laugh. These people are clowns. They're going to pull Cosby on your ass. He came up with a Red Fox, Flip Wilson, Godfrey Cambridge... A lot of these guys who are <laughs> telling it how it is. The first family was this JFK satire that went platinum as a record. That's nuts. A fucking comedy album. Mel Brooks produced a ton of these after that. You saw the cash. Little radio resurgence there in the 60s. You could see, just like the 40s after World War II, this was the 60s. You could laugh. About the president saying our government is controlled by secret societies and then his brain gets blown out. 
that's not a coincidence at all. <laughs> Warner Brothers starts cranking out comedy albums. Bob Newhart records are huge from this era. Kennedy is hooking up with Marilyn. Ma- He's having affairs. This is their grabber by the pussy moment. And I did make fun of a fair amount already today. Joe Rogan basically created the comedy boom of 2012 to 2018. And that maybe was also credited to the grabber by the pussy. (laughs) It's a combination of all these things. It's got to be the perfect recipe for there to be a boom. And then people capitalize on it from there. That is the stand-up's greatest change. (laughs) We're doing virtual shows, Cliff. Update the book. Chapter 7 percolation of the mid-60s time for the percolator it's time for the percolator it's the black chapter (laughs) dick gregory and buck henry were big cynic comics after kennedy was killed how could you laugh after that after 9-11 nobody will laugh ever again (laughs) if (laughs) if jet fuel can melt steel beams but not the 18 hijackers passports we found why don't we just build skyscrapers out of passports? That joke hits on stage. I'll probably get censored for it. <laughs> 1963, uh, Jerry Lewis show. Two-hour talk show, Saturday nights. Good with new personal comics. There's this new Playboy club in L.A. Carlin would work it a lot. <laughs> Trying to put on a show for the bun. I got nothing. That's just a comedic place. If I could Playboy imagine in New Jersey, there's a Playboy hotel. Highfalutin customers. Dick Gregory starts his own showroom in Chicago called the Esquire Lounge. More of the comedians trying to take back and own their own clubs like that Rotating Five, the original satire club in New York. Vietnam also drives a stake in comedy, a bigger division because... Some people still aren't willing to laugh at their country when it's pretty... (laughs) If you can't laugh at us testing Agent Orange on our neighbors, Canadians, I don't know. America's the ultimate good neighbor. Big division here. Do you support the war or not? Comedy has to be political. (laughs) I'm hoping we're getting towards this, like, era where uh, low class takes back comedy, which is kind of the thing that happened during the... Uh, the Vietnam War because people you can't it just doesn't work I'm trying to figure out right now who is still tuning into Trevor Noah and who's Jon Stewart the one that's on the cover art for the show it's not Jon Stewart it's that other friggin in the glasses not that British cuck John Oliver <laughs> oh I used to make fun of cigarette ads and now I make fun of people who don't want to get experimental vaccinations that guy went down the drain real fucking quick. I can't think of his name. John Stewart's little butt buddy. And both sold out together. That's the high class comedy. You know, you're supposed to always be punching up, even though they're making fun of poor white people who just like tobacco. Ooh, the flyover states. Shit, man, you're retarded if you live in a city in 2021. <laughs> we got fucking drones, police shit roving around. <laughs> More funny when the lower class takes back control. 1960s, what are we gonna fucking try to champion the Malai massacre? I'm hoping this is the era that we're getting towards. Like, they tried to cancel the Kill Tony guy. 
he gives young idiots a chance <laughs> who most of the time soil their career. You know, it's a fucking fantastic show in the world of stand-up comedy. They tried to cancel that guy, and it's not working anymore. I really hope the tides are turning. You just got to hope that you don't have to have, like, a IP identity before all this shit changes. Not a quite funny future for it. We got to take the low class back. <laughs> Comedy's not supposed to be revered by the masses. <laughs> it's fucking dick jokes in a dingy bar. It's like comedy takes on this ethos of its own. When you talk about it to other people, you forget what it actually is. Most people haven't spent more than an hour watching psychopaths at open mics. It's frustrating. Pryor was looked at as a crazy guy. Like, he was so coked up that he would sell his act. A club owner would just record it and then sell it as a record just so he could get an extra fucking eight ball of cocaine. A bunch of madmen in this era. Bill Cosby. <laughs> he was being a good boy. Uh, what was the Pryor's underling? Paul Mooney apparently did a lot of his writing. And he made fun of Robin Williams for going Hollywood. Paul Mooney could have like been Michael Jackson level starlet. He gave it up just to keep it real. Let's go to chapter 8. Hippie Madness. Still a little more 60s. Last decade of organized crime having a say in nightclubs. The West Coast Friar Club, home to Milton Berle, paid off a couple hundred grand to the mob. So L.A. is kind of free. Cliff is saying Randy Wicker was an openly gay man in 1965, and he was known as the first gay to perform for an audience. He'd be lynched before that. This was when Dick Gregory ran for president, support from the Joey Bishop show. Gregory thought there was a conspiracy to silence him, and it was later shown that the Hoover campaign snubbed his ads. <laughs> Conspiracy proven? So why don't we have a new word for when shit gets proven true? Like I said, it's just called facts. Tonight's show with Carson was at an all-time high. So the hippie era, what's so hippie about this? San Francisco had these scenic ballrooms catching fire because uh, Bob Dylan and the Grateful Dead were coming through, and they would let comics either open up the show or go after it's like the first time you see comedians at music festivals which is big nowadays crazy to think that they even did this before i saw hannibal burris at a boston calling like six years ago and he was adding in video aspects to his set it's pretty interesting stuff we learned about in uh, the robin book how san francisco had that huge insurgents of hippie comedians robin would not wear shoes on stage and then jump on people's tables i'd go karen as fuck let me speak to the manager that dude's toe jam is in my miller light groucho marx visits san francisco to try miller light time <laughs> toe jam time san francisco groucho did lsd before making the skidoo movie he did 300 mics, and he said this put him on a new comedic plane. <laughs> Carlin did LSD for the first time there as well. Cheech and Chong got inspired to do their whole weed shtick up in San Francisco, which Harold and Kumar basically ripped off. I wonder if there was Hamlet and Kumaraleta <laughs> back in the Shakespeare time, and they were smoking some hemp. There had to be some old stoner comedies, even back in Greek times. 
the stoner comedy hour was on CBS for a while before it got canceled. Uh, first era where the machine was actively working against comedians, Cliff was saying. Like they were trying to I'm trying to make it more high class again. Carlin was having a lot of ups and downs. He released takeoffs and put-ons, which went gold, playing the biggest nightclubs in the countries, became a victim to his own success. He was tired of his own jokes, did three shows on LSD, and rumor has it he produced a unique 45 minutes of destruction all three times. Red Fox saw one of his live shows and was saying he was doing shit to audiences that me and the brothers never thought was possible. Carlin was fired from many Illinois clubs because he was talking about drugs. Continuation of this Lenny Bruce shite. At least the obscenity laws are deteriorating. <laughs> we know in my short life that they can be rebolstered, though. Toronto is having a bunch of uh, hippie like smoke shows, which they still have to today. And then. 25-year-old Michaels, this little Canadian comedian writer, was hired, and he was doing this weekend update sketch he was trying to sell to NBC. It's Lauren Michaels. After years, he went to Toronto with his partner, Hart, and they put on this show called The Lauren Terrific Hour. And then it was picked up by the networks at 27 years old. It's 1974. He's in New York scouting the underbelly of uh, the New York comedy scene for a cast. A second crack at sketch comedy. Let's go to chapter 9. 1970s and the first comedy clubs. For the longest time, clubs fell under dinner club culture where the bands would split the check with the comic. More of the reason people hated working the jazz clubs. 1963, Pips opened on 358th West 44th Street ran by George Schultz and Bud Friedman, a really big uh, talent manager, costed 220k to open the club, got a loan from Franklin National Bank. Friedman, from the beginning, knew how funny Rodney Dangerfield was and made him one of the headliners from the start. Had some music acts like Neil Young blow up there as well. Pasadena Ice House was opened by Bud Friedman, and it's like the second comedy club in L.A., Richard Pryor records an album there, which blows it up. In 1972, is when you get the history of the comedy store. We'll make it quick. 1972, Sammy Shore wanted a place for only comedians. No bands, no nothing. <laughs> he wanted a house of comedy with rotating headlines. People out of town could cover for them. It's just the Club 18 idea. Changes the name to the comedy store. So the uh, like local executives know where they can go buy their comics and then obviously the people buy your laughs at the comedy store it's a pretty great name Craig T. Nelson, Barry Levinson, Rudy Deloche, Sammy Shore thrown in those were like the five original rotating headliners every other comic was saying I don't want to follow the other guys so they would put the band in the middle so much for the original vision barely made money the first year for how much the bartender and the maids were robbing them DeLuca left thinking it's going to fail. Jack Knight failed as a replacement. Sammy stuck it out with his wife, Mitzi, and they broke up, and then she, like, fucking <laughs> stole the club from him. Van Dyke, Jack Parr, Andy Griffith tried to make their stand-up comebacks. They would 
try to go through the comedy store. It's a notoriously hard room, that original 300-seater, I think it is about. It's sparse. (laughs) I'm fucking doing gazebo shows. I followed a juggler a couple weeks ago, and that gave me a couple minutes of material. I also trashed a guitarist before me, but when the people are, like, sitting on their blankets, (laughs) there was a family there, and I told the kid, why don't you go play on the playground over there? (laughs) I was like, Mom, Dad, do you really think this is an appropriate scene for a child to stand up comedy night <laughs> probably didn't help that they put me <laughs> up as the third guy the first stand up act because they probably weren't expecting some like off the cuff shit how else are you going to entertain people spaced apart laughs flying up into the stratosphere gonna do a little crowd work or something <laughs> make fun of a fucking juggler big rooms you're really gonna have trouble in one of my favorites in denver is syntax just look it up it's a beautiful stage and it's tight there's an actual audience there from time to time more of the comedy store failing it's given birth to some of the biggest stars the art form art has ever seen it's a clown house (laughs) and um it's probably the biggest like landmark of a comedy club to ever exist Richard Pryor, more about him there. You know, he's just uh, got fucking Freddie Prince to kill himself. How many times do we need to hear about this? <laughs> Big time writers like David Letterman got their start at the Comedy Store in 1975. He hosted for the longest time, gave people the best intros, so he had good humor with everybody. It was clear that Letterman wasn't a stand-up. They said he had killer stage presence, but he couldn't fill an hour. He's um, made for late night. Same year, Jay Leno started doing comedy at the store, reciting Carlin's class clown bits. <gasps> These thieves like Robin get the best deals. Freddie Prince, more about him. 1976, he got his uh, special. 1977, Carlin had his HBO special, so that was a big thing. HBO gave people the ability to like retire and act. In the 70s, you don't have the friggin' carnies doing the same hour like a jukebox or fucking pull Elmo string. Make me laugh comedy show sent waves across the country. Bud Frieden on the East Coast was really like linking the East and the West. So now you have intercoastal stars. Let's head to chapter 10 the stand up comedy boom. 80s time. Get your baggies out. Bud Frieden opened a club on the West Coast in 75 called the Hollywood Improv. This guy's killing it in the club game. 79, the comedy store had their strike, so then the improv becomes the big club. And then you probably heard the story, but someone threw a Molotov through the window. <laughs> Straight up outlaws. Mark Marin was working the door then, as I mentioned before, and he was saying it was a culture of hate in the store, but I had to feed off of the hate. And then Seinfeld would go through there, and he's like, it's a sick culture. I don't know how people work that club. And the reason is, because I said before, it's a closed-door industry. The people that work the store are elitists. You don't want the East Coasters coming in and taking some of your stage time. It's the nature of the game. Late 70s, Seinfeld was going up in New York, emceed the Chic Strip. Final club opened in the 70s. Uh, Chic. I didn't know this term before I read this book. It's like a type of comic who's extra clean. 
And this was not Seinfeld in the beginning. His original catchphrase was, What's the fucking deal with sardines? He added that F-bomb liberally. Sheik is the name of these guys that try to bury all their real feelings and perform for children. <laughs> I was allegedly on acid with an open micer buddy. And we were, like, coming down, so we were squirreling through Netflix, and we saw this thing, John Mulaney. <laughs> we're like, all right, let's... I thought this guy was in fucking rehab. What's he up to? Isn't he cheating on his wife? And he's, like, doing plays with children. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? It's not like Brian Regan, who's one of these silly guys and is just over-the-top making faces. Like, what are you talking about, Coke? <laughs> You're a, what the fuck is this Mulaney fella up to? Well, I told that kid to suck my cock. That's a decent Mulaney. <laughs> Definitely not <laughs> the time to watch that show when you're thinking extra critically. Gotta watch out for those guys who are always trying to button it up. <laughs> I'm not trying to oust anybody in my scene, but it even exists at the lower levels. You know, you're gonna make good money if you work clean. Not if you've already been othered by the industry. Jackie Gleason would tell Seinfeld to suck it up, like, go do your time in the West Coast, because, famous quote, you're going to be so big, it makes me sick. He was right about Seinfeld. Probably wouldn't have happened, though, if it weren't for Larry David, who was spending most of his time at the original York, New York Improv watching Jerry Lewis kill, who's his buddy on um, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Went to baseball camp together, never realized it. He's like, our in, our maternity ward must have been insane. They'd go to the fish market together to haggle for food. How dare you charge me $10 for a fish that looks like this? This fish looks demented. Pothead, frizzy hair look. That's not Larry David. Apparently some guy named Kenny Kramer lived across from him when he was doing the improv. And that was obviously the inspiration for the show. Seinfeld said that David was fragile on stage and he could be set off by the slightest sigh and then would just go off on a groaning audience member lady and then everybody hates him. Now he's the most loved guy in fucking Hollywood. The gong show at the time was really big so Larry would bring his own tiny gong on stage and he would just gong himself. Seven years in the trenches he was hired as a writer for a show called Fridays and moved to LA and this new boom was happening a bunch of young comedians to pick from the old acts were being pushed out of Vegas the Catskill acts were dying and the clubs started to decline talents are younger so is the audience they want something new Ohio's comedy chain Giggles started to spread like McDonald's there's less than five stand-ups from Boston in the 70s and then in the 80s there were over 60 headliners. New clubs could breed a new star. This is when the comedy works out here in Denver got its start. Roseanne uh, is one of the biggest names out of there. Kinnison came out of the comedy workshop. The Cleveland Comedy Club pumped Drew Carey. Drew Carey, he had one of the best runs also. He hosted the improv show. Got the best bounce of all time. At the time, Carlin was calling it an infectious rash, and he was seeing, like, this can't grow forever. And then, you know, after the era of the bust, the clubs closed just as fast as they all opened. It's like 200 k to open one, and you're getting all those small business loans. I'm in. 
Seinfeld had been doing the Tonight Show for nine years, and he was pissed his career was stagnant. Larry David comes to save the day, picks him as the guy for the pilot in their show. He got, meanwhile, Kinnison, 1985. He was a fucking superstar by 86. Pure cocaine-fueled comedy. I've used his opener uh, for an intro for the show. Carl LeBeau. Mans is a legend. They're called the Outlaws of Comedy. Created, like, a whole hype scene. I don't think there's that big of a fandom, again, until, like, Dave Cook, who just exploited MySpace and then got all of his money stolen from his brother. It's a big time for a boom. A lot of these guys cashed out. 86, 15 branches of yuck yucks, funny bones, punchlines, zanies, over 200 clubs around the country. With the VHS tape, people are owning uh, live specials that you could watch. And then in 1989, HBO put on the Comedy Channel and merged with another channel eventually, which became Comedy Central. It's got a permanent seat in the American household. Chapter 11, our second to last, 1990s. 91 to 93 was pretty much dead noise. No one's ever seen an art form turn over that quickly. Louis C.K. would say he would perform to an empty comedy cellar, and now it's like a landmark in New York. Those creatives who kept at it through the worst times become the biggest acts you see through the 90s. Eddie Murphy, he's got obviously a um, particular circumstance, but he was a touring machine through the 90s. He was like one of the first guys to consistently do arenas for a decade. He quit on top. Chris Rock, inspired by Murphy, Henny Youngin jokes he would like uh, write down as a kid. I didn't even know this. Chris Rock was on the SNL cast in 1990. Bring the Pain, legendary special. Def Comedy Jam premiered in 92. Big for young black comics. Martin Lawrence got his whole, made his bones there. BET also had a show called Comics View. So it's all over TV at this point. But there's not as many tickets being sold there was a housing crash in the 90s as well it's not this salomon brokerage bubble of the 80s where everyone's trying to show off on a date conan writing on the simpsons and he got his tip for the host position to host conan in the 90s he also hired louis as a writer and he was said louis would just leave at 2 a.m to do stand-up when they were still writing didn't take the job seriously he was only he was. He probably would just say, I'm going out to poop. Chicago was working with a young crop, Steve Carell over there, Chris Farley, Amy Sedaris. And then a uh, weird fail in the 90s. The Dana Carvey show had some legs. There was like that Ben Stiller show. These things were canceled in weeks. Nothing could hold on. Let's go to chapter 12, the final one. The new millennium. When Bush was sworn in, it was all too easy to make a joke. Then 9-11 comes and you can never make a joke again. Letterman, Conan, John Stewart, all were saying, it seems disrespectful for us to put on a comedy show tonight. I mentioned in the early OOs, Dane Cook, one of the biggest pioneers that used the internet to build a career, mentions how SNL is still a catapult to stardom in the new era. Is this still true? <laughs> Only if they cancel the person who's going to be on the cast. I literally can't name more than three people on the that aren't on the weekend update even 
the only reason you would take this job nowadays is so that you could date Scarlett Johansson. Like, it's a certain comedian who becomes an SNL cast member. When you have all the resources you can to make your own sketches, it's like the retirement plan of comedy. So, of course, everybody would take it. I'm saying this as a three-year in the snottiest age where you're better than some eight years. Of course, I would be a fucking cast member. Bobby Moynihan, Nick Muniz. You would do it for that voice alone. It's losing its prestige as the errors go is the point. And SNL was really good. Like my age, I was 12 years old in friggin' 2008. That was when they had Kyle Mooney and Beck Bennett. And the only reason those guys got poached was because they were making those good neighbor YouTube videos. Dude, we should totally snoke together. You got that Crystal Knights crushies, dude? <laughs> I don't even know those guys from SNL. I know them from YouTube. <laughs> Scott Aukerman is being credited here by Cliff Nesteroff for creating Earwolf of Wall Street in 2010, the first podcast. It's definitely not. <laughs> like in 2005, I had an iPod Touch and it had podcasts. And I was like, what the fuck is that gay shit? I'm never clicking on that. <laughs> pretty cheap he's like ending the book talking about robin williams dying it's a real blow to comedians and a mental health check to everyone and then 10 years later the guy brody stevens kills himself <laughs> healthy career path <laughs> we learned at the end of the robin book he said the addiction depression and anxiety subsides within you but comedy for some can be one salvation there should obviously be a new chapter here discussing <laughs> the hellscape that is stand-up you could write a book alone on 2020 and the fallouts of this year 21 it is like an artificial dip that has been created in stand-up i'm gonna start trading nft stocks of comedy clubs or some bullshit i feel like just like the economy instead of 10-year boom bust it's going to be even quicker blowing up <laughs> And blowing dudes. <laughs> I can't say what's going on. Like, there's this guy, Rito Brown. I remember from 2014, just had a pop an IG page, and then he was selling out comedy clubs. And you're going to see more of this. So there's just going to be crankier and crankier old-timers saying, no, they didn't put the work in. And I'm even mad at people that are starting now after coronavirus. I'm happy I didn't start during it, because then I probably would have been like, yeah, this is not a real thing. Having seen what it was before, during that 2014 to 18, it's like, uh, it's a real counterculture. It's a scene that you want to be a part of. It's a way to let out laughter, and it's a mountain to climb. Pretty decent way to waste your time on Earth. I'm loving it. Thank you, guys. It's our third year check-in there. Cliff Nesteroff coming at us with the comedians. Thank you, everybody that's been here from the beginning. A big special shout out to the Patreon members for supporting the Believers from day one. Seriously, you guys are not forgotten even in the slightest bit. Same prayers to y'all. Next week, we are bringing it up to date and beyond the future of violence. <laughs> That's right. Real world and theoretical weapons. You guys know I know my shit when it comes to nuclear class submarines. They got trains. That can go incognito and carry nukes now as well. We got the ICBM games on fleek. It's not just nuke talk. We're going chemical weapons, bludgeoning tools. Do you know 
about knives that can inject air pockets into people. There's some next level villains creating weapons out there. This is going to be a really fun show. We'll talk about vulnerability and how just one bomb, one bomb, not even a nuke, has a thousand times the corrosive power of Nagasaki. It's going to be a really fun show. I want to thank you guys once again for staying tuned. My name is Nick Munez. Make sure you're checking out the social media support. It's right on the top of the YouTube page. Love you all. I'll see you next week. Later.